The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from the book of Genesis, chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men were with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with with the children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise with her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on them slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, and until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of this place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padaram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar, and he called it El Eleha Israel. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Which is one of the Porterbrook learning sites in North America. I want to give you a quick overview of Porterbrook to help you determine if it's right for you and for your context. What is Porterbrook learning? Well, it's a church-based theological training curriculum. The reason I like Porterbrook is because it solves two problems I've seen among Christian leaders. Uh, The first problem is very simply weak character. Uh, I've met a lot of Christians who have theological training, but have never been formed in their character. They haven't experienced spiritual formation. The entire Porterbrook curriculum puts character right at the center, so that the emphasis isn't just on what you know, but on what kind of a person you're becoming. The second problem Porterbrook solves is a disconnection from mission. 
Uh, the whole structure of Porterbrook is missional in its approach. It's not theology for theology's sake. It's theology that equips you to be a good missionary in a post-Christian world. Uh, let me list for you real quickly some of the distinctives of Porterbrook learning so you can understand how it's a little bit different. Uh, first of all, Porterbrook is biblical. Your Bible is going to be your primary textbook for the entire program. Second, it's practical. It's meant to be applied right now in your actual life. Third, it's relational. And so you get to study with a cohort of two or three others, which gives camaraderie and accountability. And you also have access to an online student interaction board where you can interact with Porterbrook students literally all over the world. Fourth, Porterbrook is contextual. Rather than moving somewhere else to attend school, you can stay right where you are. Fifth, it's accessible. It's written for ordinary Christians like you and me, not for academically trained theologians. Sixth, it's flexible. You can study at a pace and at a schedule that fits you. And finally, it's affordable. The full two-year Porterbrook learning program is about a tenth of the cost of traditional seminary education. I hope that overview helps you understand what Porterbrook is and how it might help you whether you're seeking to develop leaders or just to become a better leader yourself. I invite you to browse around the Porterbrook Network website or to drop an email if you have further questions. Good morning, everybody. Um, <clears throat> for, for those of you that don't know, in our local church, um, this past week we had about 15 people from our local church, travel out to Omaha, Nebraska, where that video took place. I think it was 11 in the first year and four in the, in the second. Um, and uh, the first years rounded out their first year, and the second years graduated and got their diplomas. And um, I know our congregation hears a lot about Porterbrook and um, how a lot of people are going through it, but I guess we just wanted to share um, how it's the effects of the program, how it's uh, creating gospel change in my heart. And, and I think Larry and other gentlemen from my cohort will come up and share in a second. Um, but God has just been using co- uh, Porterbrook and our cohort specifically in just mighty ways. Um, I know that for me it has just been a, a blessing to walk with men who know me, press in on me, and show me more about the gospel every single week. Um, each Porterbrook year is a long road and takes a lot of discipline. Can I get an amen from the Porterbrook students? <laughs> uh, but, but seriously, the benefits are outstanding and God uses it. Um, it's a program that's great for all people in our church, men and women, who want to grow in their theological understanding of Scripture and how the gospel applies to our life. Um, but even more than that, you are given a cohort who walks with you, prays with you, and wrestles with sin um, that you're experiencing in your life with you. Uh, Porterbrook is about making the truths of Scripture practical in our lives and felt in our heart. And um, I know that some people are looking to grow in theology and, and, and big terms and stuff, but um, that's really not the aim for Porterbrook. Its intent is to really... Um, make us experience the gospel in our heart and in our lives. And I know that it's um, formed my heart a lot personally. Uh, Porterbrook has made me more sensitive to the sin in my life and just has humbled me in general. Um, (laughs) The past year for me, I have met my wife, I have married my wife, (laughs) and we've moved into a new place. There's just been a lot going on, but um, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have the men in my cohort 
Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful to God for them. Um, it was a bit hard down the home stretch, but uh, what we learned together was really invaluable. So, Larry, do you want to come up and share? Thanks. So I wanted to say real quick that uh, Al, this is Alec Efkus, if you didn't know. Alec is uh, one of our co-missional uh, community leaders. Um, he's been in, this is, he just finished his second year, and this is my uh, wise and esteemed father. So we've got a young man out of, out of college taking Porterbrook, and then we've got a seasoned gentleman uh, <laughs> taking, uh, taking Porterbrook. So go ahead, Dad. I paid him to say that first part, but then he <laughs> threw in that seasoned stuff. Uh, Porterbrook has been great. Um, I spoke a little bit about it last year after year one. Year one uh, for the seasoned folks is it was a little more difficult for me because I was getting rid of a lot of religious stuff that did not have any any basis or founding. Uh, it was just a bunch of, of rules and rules without the gospel. It doesn't produce much. So it is rich in theology. It teaches you a lot about the Bible, about yourself, and about the gospel. Um, it would probably be easier for those of you going now because you've been sitting in Sacred City and you've been learning about the gospel, you've been hearing about the gospel, how to apply it to your life, and how to be on mission. So I'm not going to add a lot to what Alex said other than I would encourage you to to consider going to Porterbrook. It will, uh, for a lot of the seasoned folks, we have been brought up to work and to work hard and to accomplish things. And I knew a whole lot about working and looking like I was there uh, from the gospel perspective and found out that I wasn't, found out that I needed a lot of what I was learning at Porterbrook in Omaha. And they are also being recognized as leaders in Porterbrook nationally. So they got a lot going on. They're trying to improve things. It's, it is intense. It will force you to study. Reading is not studying, okay? So, uh, but I would encourage you to get involved, um, to consider going to Porterbrook because it will change your life. Thanks. So, um, we have had, around just just under 20, um, 20 men and women and ladies go through Porterbrook or, or are in the process of it. I want to present it to you. This is an op- opportunity for you to grow in the gospel, to learn how to be a good missionary or a better missionary here in the Quad Cities. Um, it's going to shape you as a person. It's going to shape you as a man or a woman, husband and a wife um, or a wife. Uh, never mind. <laughs> Um, so I, I, it's $600 per year. Um, you can make that in, in a couple, in a few different payments if you need to. It's really an investment in your future. It starts in September. So you're going to be hearing about it. Us promote it more over the summer. We want you to start to begin to pray about that. Um, and, and if you, if you want to lead a missional community, then you need to go through this. Um, this will equip you. Um, this is going to get the men and women in your life that's going to help shape you. This is what you need to do if you're going to lead a missional community, if, you're going, if, you, want it, if you desire to be a leader at Sacred City, or you just want to be a better missionary, better mom, better, better dad. This is an opportunity for you to do that. So um, you're going to be hearing more about that in the future. And I really encourage you to start thinking about it and praying about it. And right now I want to um, celebrate uh, five of our 
gentlemen who have graduated and went through the full two-year program. I'm really excited for them. So I want, uh, I want Joel. Joel, we're gonna, Joel graduated last year, but we didn't get you anything. So Joel, you're going to come up here. We're going to give you something. Uh, Joel, come on up here. Alec, come on up here. Larry, come up here. Anthony, come up here. Sam, come on down. All right, I think that's, I think that's all of them. So, <clears throat> oh boy, that's right. So I'll just let you know. I mean, it looks real fancy in here because Sam did it. Yeah, I have him wrap his own gift. That's what being an intern's all about. So <clears throat> what, we, what we did, what we got him, we got you guys. Uh, this is a this is a man's this is a man's present in here. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just gonna tell you. So you got a free haircut and a free hot shave with a straight razor from down at the Blackhawk. All right. So enjoy it. Yeah, it's gonna be. So you'll have to shave one day. So, <clears throat> but these, these gentlemen, um, two years of their life, they've sacrificed, um, for God's kingdom, for God's glory. Um, they gave up they meet as cohorts once a week for the entire, other than they take the summers off for the entirety of two years. They've walked through thick and thin together. They've walked through good times and bad times together. Um, and they've come out on the other side and they've been shaped by the gospel And hopefully this has set a foundation for them to further on their education, to further on their their development in the gospel, their understanding of the gospel through fight clubs and everything else. They know they're graduating from Porterbrook, but they're not graduating from discipleship or graduating from sanctification. Right? So I wanted to pray over these men. I wanted to honor these men. It's, uh, they're a joy to our church. They're a blessing to our church. They're involved in missional communities. They, you know, in fight clubs, they, they, their, their leadership is invaluable. So I want to pray over them. If you pray with me, father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for, um, their investment in their own education, their investment in your own kingdom. I pray that you would bless them, that you would bless their wives, that you would bless their family, that you would bless everything they put their hand to that father, their ultimate joy would be found in your glory and that you would receive much glory from these men in their humility, um, in their sacrifice and in their desire to be made into men who follow hard after Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift they are to this church. Thank you for the gift they are to me as the pastor. And uh, they are a great blessing to you, to, to your kingdom here in the Quad City. So in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, man. Love you. Cool. All right. Um, last but not least, the last Wednesday night of this month, I think it's the 26th. We are having a church-wide missional community picnic. So all, it's a Wednesday night, all of our missional communities. Instead of doing the normal missional community thing, we're all going to gather together at Jungie Park. That's right across the street from Lou Jack's. And we're going to have a great barbecue or grill. We're going to grill. Um, the, the details are on the city, but you can show up. It's from 5 to 9. We'll be eating about 6 o'clock. We'll be grilling. Bring your own meat and a side to share. Um, it's going to be a great time. So bring yard, uh, lawn chairs and your yard games and all that's going to be a great opportunity for all of us to, to gather together. All right. We ready to go? Okay. Let's get after it this morning. I'm going to pray again. Father, I do thank you for an opportunity once again to preach your word. I thank you for an opportunity to gather with your saints, to study scripture, to sit under it and inside it and just be shaped and changed by it. I pray that we would see truth here today. I pray that we'd hear truth. I pray that you would um, 
Think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, Father God. I'm a foolish, sinful man. And anything that good comes out of my mouth is from you today and not from um, anywhere in, in myself. I pray that you would anoint our ears to hear what you would have us hear, um, that we would hear clearly, we would hear the gospel, we would hear your spirit this morning for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's already been a great weekend. Um, I, don't think, I don't think I see... Kayla and Cedric here this morning, but rightly so. They got married last night. Um, Kayla and Cedric came to our church about a year, a year and a half ago. And um, they had, uh, without sharing too much of their story, they had been living together for, for a long, several years. They've had several kids together. They came to faith here. Cedric got baptized here. And then last night we got the joy to marry them. Um, and it was just a, it was just a joyous occasion. It was phenomenal to see what God's done in their life. So I'm kind of up here today. I'm really excited about the work that God's been doing through Sacred City, the work that God's been doing here in our church. Their missional community provided a lot of the stuff in the for the for the reception. It was uh, it was a, just a great it was a great day yesterday. So, well, let's get going. We're in uh, Genesis chapter 33. It's kind of a funky text. We're going to get to it in a second. Um, basically, let me set it up by saying this. In the Bible, there are two great overarching themes. I mean, there's several overarching themes, but there's two major ones. And the first is that God is all about his own glory. Now, that, ner- that freaks some people out. Um, Oprah once said that the reason she left Christianity is because God was a jealous God. That God was about his own glory. So she didn't want a God who was jealous, so she left the Christian religion. But the Bible teaches that God is about his own glory. Romans 11:36 says this. For of him, speaking of Jesus, for of him and through him and to him are all things. Somebody say all things. Okay. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. This is what that means. The whole entirety of the galaxies of the universe of everything that exists inside of creation, everything exists for one sole purpose. And that sole purpose is to display the glory of God. Okay. God does not exist for our, for us. God does not exist for our own joy, for our own happiness to to please us. God exists for himself. Why? Because he's the ultimate in all of creation. There's nothing above him, nothing higher than him, nothing more weighty than him. He speaks and galaxies pop into existence, right? He's amazing. He's above. He's all about his own glory. And one of uh, and the second overarching theme is that people. Now this is this is stay with me today. That people crave and desire their own joy and happiness. Okay. First theme is that God is all about His own glory. Second theme is that people crave and desire their own joy and happiness. That we were created, we like to say, we were created by a happy God inside of a happy trinity. So we are created to desire our own happiness. And one of my personal pastoral heroes, uh, Pastor John Piper, who just retired after 30-some years of pastoral ministry in Minneapolis... He spent the last 30 years or so telling the world that these two realities, these two overarching themes, they are not at odds with each other. God's desire to be glorified and our desire for joy and happiness, they are not two ends of a spectrum. 
He says it like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. What is the chief end of man? I say to my son, son, what's your purpose? And he responds, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Piper is known for making a small adjustment to that saying that says, we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. How do we glorify God? By enjoying Him. How do we bring God glory? By enjoying Him. God's being glorified and our joy is inextricably linked. It's tied together. You can't pull one away from the other. So what that means, now this is where you're going you're gonna to have to go with me here. Because this can, you can hear this th- through American ears, which you're, going, which you're doing, right? But you can fall off the wagon because you think I mean something that I don't mean. So I'm just going to let you know what I don't mean before I tell you what I do mean, okay? I don't mean, what I'm about to say is in no way prosperity theology. Is no way that God desires you to be without trials and without trouble and without difficulties and without pain. That he'll somehow heal everyone that has cancer other than when we get to heaven. You know, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm not saying that God wants you to be a millionaire. I'm not saying any of these things. But what I am saying is this. God's glory and our joy is inextricably linked. So what that means is that God desires for you to be happy. Happy, happy, happy. Okay. God desires for you to be happy. Now listen, some people, they want to separate happy and joy. Okay. The Bible doesn't do that. I understand why they want to do it because we have this American version of what happy means. That means that I get the boy that I want. I get the girl that I want. I get the pair of the jeans that I want. We think that's what happiness is. Well, that's just a bad definition of happiness. Okay. This is what the scripture says. Psalm 144, 15. Happy is that people. That is in such a case, yes, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. So God says, people who's, who understand Him rightly, they are happy people. And in fact, He commands us, in Philippians, He commands us to be full of joy. Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. God wants it to go well for us. He wants us to be filled with joy and happiness because, listen, this is the key, because He is the source of that ultimate joy and happiness. And if we really believe this, if we really believe that God's will or God's glory and my joy are not at odds with each other, what it means for us is that all of God's commands for us, listen to this, all of God's commands for us are given to us Not to diminish our joy, but to maximize it. All of God's commands and everything he tells us to do, they're given to us to bring us maximum joy. Not to diminish it. Not to take away. Not to slap us on the wrist. So what that means then, the flip side of that, is when we sin... When we disobey God and we turn away from Him, we are actually killing our own sense of joy. 
When we sin, we're actually killing our own sense of joy. To turn away from God and to disobey Him is to put a pistol in the mouth of our own joy and pull the trigger. But guess what? We do this every single day, don't we? We disobey God. We turn away from Him. We try to find our joy and our satisfaction in things other than Him every single day. And I'm telling you, every time we do it, we'll put a pistol in the mouth of our own joy and we're pulling the trigger. And today we're going to see in Genesis 33 that so did Jacob. And if you were here last week, this is going to blow your mind. Or maybe it will. Jacob was a man who had experienced God. We, we saw him last week, right? He had an encounter with God, but he was still a man. He was still a sinful man who struggled with his own sins and failures. Anybody know anything about that? See, last week we saw Jacob. He was a deceitful and a driven man who had wrestled everybody in his past and been victorious. He was a winner. But this Jacob, he met with Jesus. He wrestled with him all night long. And then Hosea 12.4 describes the scene like this. Hosea 12.4, a prophet says this. He wrestled with God and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. <laughs> okay? Brilliant. He wrestled with God and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Jacob won the wrestling match with God by losing. Jesus popped his hip out of socket with his finger to show his power. So Jacob now, in weakness, grabbed onto Jesus, cried like a baby, and asked for a blessing. And somehow, in that weakness... He was made strong. See, Jesus did more than bless him in that moment. Jesus changed his name from Jacob, which literally means deceiver. Okay, how would you like that? Your mom just names you deceiver, right? Come out. I'll call this one moron, right? Here's baby idiot, right? Like growing up all your whole life with the name. Moron, get over here, right? I don't know why he acts like a moron all the time. Maybe because it's his name. Possibly, right? He's been named deceiver his whole life. And now in this moment, Jesus says, what's your name? And he's like, moron, right? Deceiver. He goes, no more. Today, your name will be Israel. And this is where the nation of Israel will eventually come from. Yes. Israel means he wrestles with God or God fights and he wins. But he wins through losing. So Jesus changes his name and then Jesus walks off into the sunrise Jacob gets up from there as a new man. The sun rose. He gets up. He's a new man. His name is Israel. But from that moment on, Jacob never walked the same again. If you remember, Jacob left there walking with a limp. That's how Jesus wants his shepherds. That's how Jesus wants his men, his women. That's how people who meet God were meant to walk with a limp. We're meant to be reminded constantly of our weakness. That our strength comes through our weakness. Our qualification for ministry comes through our weakness, not through our strength. It's an upside down kingdom. So that is, that's where we pick up our story today. And if we remember this whole thing, this was on the heels. Jacob's waiting for his brother to come. He's meeting Esau, the one he had schemed all of his inheritance out of. Esau's got 400 men on his way. He thinks Esau's ready to kill him. But the last time he met him, Esau said, I'm going to kill you next time I see you. So he's waiting for Esau to show up. Jesus shows up, wrestles him. That's where, we, that's where we're at this morning. Okay. So he gets up there, he leaves, he, he's limping away, he crosses this little stream, he finds his family. 
And then this is where we end up in verse 1. So if you have your Bible, please go to Genesis chapter 33, verse 1. You can find it on a version app. Sacred City has their own uh, iPhone and, and Android app. You can find it there. Please follow along with us this morning. <clears throat> We're going to go pretty quick. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, Esau was coming. So he's already crossed the river. Now Esau's coming. And 400 men with him. So nothing's really changed in his situation. Okay? Nothing's changed in Jacob's situation so far. His brother's still coming, he thinks, to kill him. But the only thing that's changed now is, Esau, or is Jacob. Okay? He doesn't think Esau's been changed. The situation hasn't changed. Jacob's been changed. Jacob's been wounded by God. And look, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, that's his other two wives. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with their children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So this is pretty bad. Jacob's like, okay, line up in order of my favorite. All right, no, I don't like you near as well. You're in the front. And we notice Joseph, the son of Rachel, the last son of Rachel, Rachel and Joseph in the very back. His precious, my precious, his precious is in the very back, okay? The farthest away from Esau. Verse 3, he himself went on before them. So this is a man, this is what a man does. A man who's been changed by God doesn't hide in the back. A man who's been changed by God goes out to meet, goes out to confront whatever difficulty it is facing his family, whatever enemy is facing his family. A real man goes out and confronts that head on bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So we see something significant here. This wounded Jacob, this proud man Jacob has been wounded by God and now he's humble. He's more humble. He bows before his brother seven times. This is a common thing. Vassals and kings and servants in that that day, it's a common thing to bow seven times before. But look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. All right? Look at this. For whatever reason, we don't even know. The narrator just completely blanks what's going on. All we have to to assume is as God was preparing Jacob to meet Esau, God was also preparing Esau to meet Jacob. That Esau, who was bitter over his brother stealing his birthright and stealing his blessing and stealing his inheritance, that this Esau, who had godless wives and has, we have no record, we don't, he doesn't have a relationship with God, but God was doing something in his life to prepare him to meet his brother, to prepare him to forgive his brother. Listen to this, parents. Listen to this. We need to think about this. Jacob doesn't scheme. Jacob doesn't start a little gossip trail that hopes he gets back to Esau and Esau realizes, you know, some, some of the extenuating circumstances. Jacob does nothing but meet with God and trust that God will meet with Esau. This is how we solve conflicts, church. We go to God, not necessarily to each other. We not, not to people underneath us, not Lord have mercy, not to Facebook. We bring our problems to the creator of all things and, that, and we trust that that God can still change hearts in other people and change our own heart as well, right? He changed, he changed Jacob before he changed Esau, all right? So then he changed his heart, praised God, and look what happens. And then Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Now look, 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 look. 
Is this how brothers talk to each other? The children whom have graciously served you, right? Your servant, right? Like this, he's, he's going above and beyond. He's humbling himself. He's putting himself before Esau, realizing I've harmed you and I've hurt you and I've sinned against you. So now I am, even though God says I'm not, I am your servant. Verse 6, then the servants drew near, they and all their children, and they bowed down. So everybody kind of had this, it was like this uh, a giant flash mob, right? He had like planned this little flash mob. He's bowing seven times, and you know, the beat kicks in, and then they're all bowing, they're doing their thing, right? <clears throat> that, I'm reading into that a little bit, so. Verse 7, Leah likewise and her church drew, or church, and, and children drew near and bowed down. And last, and last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company? What's up with the flash mob that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Jacob's just, hey man, I'm doing it to make you happy. I'm doing it so you don't kill me. I'm doing it because I thought you were going to, you hated me because I, you know, kind of stole your inheritance and all that stuff I did. So I'm, he's very upfront and honest with him. This is a first for Jacob. Verse nine, but Esau said, I have enough brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So this is common. In that culture, you deny it the first time. Okay? Hey, here's this gift. Oh, no, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. Right? And now Jacob's supposed to ask back, and you go through this little dance, right? That's what's going on right now. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face. Look at this. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you've accepted me. Now, this is the same term he uses the day before when he's wrestling with God and he says, oh my, oh my God, I have seen the face of God and I've lived. So the, the, the commentator or the, um, the narrator is, is wanting to point us back to that, that something significant happened in that encounter with God that prepared him to encounter his brother. Okay? You, he couldn't just go in his own strength and go in his own flesh and go with all of his own baggage and meet his brother. He had to be changed by God first. He had to be wounded by God, humbled by God before he can reconcile with his brother. All right? Narrator is pointing that out to us. Verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. He's giving God the praise for all the houses and all the wealth and all the servants he's got. And because I have enough. Thus he urged him. And look at this. And he took it, right? So what's, what should happen is they go back and forth, they go back and forth, and if Esau accepts it, then Esau goes, well, brother, I've got a gift for you as well. But Esau goes, no. Jacob goes, no, really? He goes, okay, I got it. And Esau pockets it. And now listen, this is key. Because this is not brothers, you know, graciously, God's just done all the work. This is Esau saying, thank you, you owe me that. You stole my birthright. You stole my blessing. So I'll take this gift that you give me. I will take it as we're even now. Okay? The, the, uh, the scales have been leveled. Okay? Everything that you stole from me, this extravagant gift that you're giving me now, now we're even, brother. Okay? And this is where we see things um, get a little different. A little, little strange, I would say. Verse 12. Not strange. Uh, then Esau said, I got an idea. Let's journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, so, so Esau has got 400 fighting men on horses. 
right? They can move a lot faster. Jacob's got all the young kids and all the livestock and, and they're going to travel at a slower pace. So Esau says, here, I'm headed back to a place called Seir. I'm headed back there. You follow me and I'll guard the way for you and we'll go back to my homeland of Seir. Look at, um, and this is where we, we begin to see that God has brought um, reconciliation to the brothers, but he has not brought a restored relationship. Did you hear that? God has brought reconciliation, but he has not brought a restored relationship. There's a difference between repentance and a restoration of relationship. Okay? You can repent and you can forgive someone, but not necessarily be continually be in relationship with them. See, Esau right here, Esau wants Jacob to follow him to Seir, but Jacob knows he can't follow him. See, God has called Jacob to go to the land of Canaan, to go back to Bethel. He's meant to follow God to Bethel, back to the place where he first met God, where he saw the ladder and he set up the stone, he did all that. God's called him to go back to Bethel. His brother's living outside the promised land in Seir, and his brother's like, hey, bro, we're good now, we're even, come follow me back to Seir. So Jacob knows, and he's, he's trying to dance around. He doesn't want to hurt his brother's feelings. He doesn't want to offend him, and it's really difficult. We just reconciled, but now we're not in restored relationship. I can't go where you're going. He, he knows in his mind, brother, you're heading in a place that I can't follow you. You're heading in a direction that I can't go. God has called Jacob to Bethel, but Esau wants him to go to Seir. That's a problem, right? So how is this... How will this changed man, how will this Jacob who's now Israel, how will he respond to this touchy situation? Right? You just kind of, you just uh, repented, you just reconciled, and now they say something that offends you right again. Right? Now they say something, hey, come follow me, we're going to go to the bar. Hey, come follow me, we're going to go do this. And you're like, how's Jacob going to respond? Is he going to go to prayer and say, oh God, how you delivered me the first time, deliver me again? Oh God, I don't want to respond like Jacob. I want to live out of the identity that you've given me, Israel. I don't want to struggle between, you know, me personally. Like, am I going to respond? I I have this wrestler. I grew up as a wrestler, so I have this wrestler kind of persona. It's real aggressive. Am I going to respond out of this wrestler persona? Or am I going to respond out of the, the servant identity, the God's son identity that you've given me in Christ? There's this moment of wrestling here for Jacob. Look at verse 13. How's he going to respond? But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a king. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are, that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children. Until I come, look, look, until I come to my Lord in where? So what's Jacob say? Hey, bro, right behind you. I'm right behind you. You go on. I got all these kids. I'm coming right behind you. Right? Look, look, keep reading. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's still real. You know, this is politically correct. He's real humble. So Esau, verse 16. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Look at this. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth. And built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of 
Shechem, which is, it is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan, Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. Where's Jacob supposed to go? Okay. He told, uh, let me explain this. So he told Esau, hey, I'm headed to Seir. God told Jacob to go to Bethel. Jacob ends up in Shechem. All right, we got this crazy stuff. Now listen, I had a, I had a, go ahead and throw that map up here. I'm just going to throw it. You and I can't see it very well, but I at least can show it, show you what's going on here. Okay. Esau is coming from here. All right. You can't, I'm not even going to try to read everything because you can't, it's blurry. Esau is coming this direction and Jacob's coming this direction. They meet right here. Okay. Jacob says, Hey bro, I'm going to follow you. I'm on my way. Keep moving. Okay. He's supposed to go to Bethel, which is right here. Instead, he goes to Shechem, which is right here. Okay. So literally he goes, bro, I'm right behind you. And then he goes in the opposite direction. Okay, so what's Jacob doing? He's back up to he's back to his old tricks. He's deceiving again. You can take that off. He's deceiving again, right? Jacob's in a tough spot, and he responds sinfully. He lies to Esau. Yeah, yeah, I'm right behind you, bro. And then he heads off in the opposite direction. God told him to go to Bethel, but he goes to Shechem. And this should be good news for us today because many of us in this room have had a life-changing experience with God. We've been wounded by God. We've been changed by God, but we still struggle to obey Him daily. We still, though we have been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin has been broken in our lives, we still struggle with the presence of sin. This reality is why we so desperately love the gospel. See, in the gospel, Jesus takes all of our punishment for sin. But he goes even farther than that. He imputes to us or he counts to us his own perfect record. That means by faith in Jesus' work on the cross, we get his perfect life counted as if it was our own. Can you imagine if this somehow could work out in school? And like... You could just sit behind the valedictorian and her grades would be counted towards yours. This would be a great plan, right? This is what it's like in the gospel. As we believe in Christ, his righteousness is counted as our own. See, if all of our obedience, if all of our attempts at obedience are still only partial, like Jacob, they're only partial obedience, then at best... That means our relationship with God would be resting on our ability to obey God. That means our our relationship with God would always be in question. Am I obeying him enough? Am I not obeying him enough? Where's my relationship with God stand? Am I saved today? Am I not saved today? Thankfully, in the gospel, that is not the case. See, Christ obeyed perfectly on our behalf. So we are free now to obey God out of a joy and not out of a desire to prove ourselves or be made right before him. It's the beauty of the gospel. Listen, before I knew this, I grew up in a church that had altar calls. If you've ever been to a church at altar, that means at the end of the service, the piano player, the musicians come up and they get it all emotionally primed and all emotionally charged. And the sermon all works to this crescendo. And right at the crescendo, I, he brings the, do you know Jesus? If you were going to die today and walk out this building, what? And I swear to you, 747 times I walked that altar. <laughs> hoping, hoping this time, please let it stick. 
please let it stick this time. And I, and I meant it every time. Every time the pastor had worked this whole thing up where if you're in sin, if you're in sin, you should doubt your salvation. If you are not perfected in glory, then you should doubt your salvation. And now, as he plays this song for the 674th time, come down. I know there's one more person in here. One more person in here. Like, it, are we auctioning off steers? What is going on? But that's what you feel. Right? There's this pressure. Right? Finally, the deacon in the back's like, the pastor's never going to quit. I'm just going to go down. Right? He gets up, walks the aisle, then they can finally stop. Right now that kind of creates this atmosphere where people doubt their salvation and their salvation is dependent upon their own moral perfection and their own sinlessness and not on the imputed righteousness of Christ. If I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ. Who can take me out? Jesus said, I never lost one of my sheep, but he'll perfect us till the end. Right? But what if I... Okay, so, so, but what do we do about our own remaining sin? How now do we live? Right? If we've had an experience with God and we've been made right with God by faith, but we still struggle with sin on a daily basis, what do we do with that? Many Christians miss it right here. Many people don't understand the gospel right here. There, it's not just, you know, we're either feel, you know, completely condemned or we just forget about sin and we can do whatever we want and we're saved by grace. Both of those are wrong. We must fight our sin. We must fight it. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must fight our sin. But how do we fight our sin? And I'm going to say this. We fight our sin by fighting for our joy. We fight our sin by fighting for our joy. All right, listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. Many of you have heard it before. We are half-hearted creatures. Stop. Before, I didn't quote this part, but this is what he says before that. Many people think that Christianity is about suppressing your desires. Turn off your sexual desires. Turn off your desire for things. Turn off your desire for happiness. They... That's not what Christianity is about. That's what the Stoics are about. That's what, you know, certain philosophers are about. That's not what Christianity is about. Lewis would say, Lewis did say right before he quotes this, he said, our desire, God doesn't find our desires too weak or too strong. God, does, God finds our desires too weak. This is how he said it. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So he's saying our desire for joy is so small that we think a movie can satisfy it. Our desire for joy is so small, we think a one night stand can solve it. Our desire for joy is too small. We're far too easily pleased. Now, I'm going to call this, and you're going to have to give me some grace here. I'm going to call this the doctrine of half-assery. We are half-assed people. We struggle daily with the option to obey God's will or follow our own. We're half-assed. Now, before you get up and throw stuff at me for cussing in church, let me explain the origin of the word half-assed. Okay? If you've... You probably, most of us have probably never heard this, but there's an instrument, a tool called an as. Okay, it's an as. There's a Z in that word. And what an as does is an ad kind of as like, 
planes off wood, makes it smooth. Now, how many of you ever seen a mantelpiece, like maybe in a cabin, that the back of the mantelpiece is perfectly smooth and the top of the mantelpiece is perfectly smooth, but then the front has still got bark and it's still jagged and it's still rough. Have you seen that? Okay, that is a half-assed piece of wood. Okay, literally. The as, the tool, the shaper has, sh- has smoothed off the top and smoothed off the back and it's left the front jagged. Okay, that's a half-assed piece of wood. Okay, now in the 60s, because everything good happens in the 60s, in the 60s, somehow it just became, because probably we, nobody knew what an as was anymore, so somehow, somehow one guy just said, did he say half-ass? I guess, let's just use it, half And it becomes half-ass. All right, so it literally means... A job that's halfway done, right? A job that's halfway done. Now, let me illustrate what I'm calling the doctrine of half-assery. I tell my son, Javin, and I, first off, for two years probably, I clean, me and Amanda and I, we clean Javin's room. We go in and we clean it up right. And then he gets to an age and we start having chores and we're teaching him responsibility and discipline. So now he has to clean his room. Okay? So I say, Javin. I want you to go clean your room. We turn music on in the whole house. Everybody's doing chores. Go clean your room. Okay, I clean it. He's up there for an hour, you know, whatever. He comes down. He's playing video game. Hey, what are you doing? Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. Okay, cool. We, we peek in. It looks great. Two days later, we walk into his room. We can't find any of his clothes. Where are all your clothes? I did all the laundry. The clo- you look under the bed, and every piece of clothes he owns is shoved under the bed. Okay, now I'm pretty sure... I don't know about Amanda, but I know that I have never went in his room and taught him how to shove his clothes under his... This is what you do. When you're in a hurry, you just take all your clothes and you just shove them under the bed. Nobody's going to know. You'll be good. I did not teach my son the doctrine of half-assery. He was born with this, whatever it is. One day in his mind, he said, you know what? Why do I have to clean my clothes? Why do I have to clean my room? There's this big space under my bed. It's probably made for that. That's why, that's what closets are invented for, right? Like, you don't have to do this. Now, listen, some of you, you're in college and you've had to write papers at school. Now, do you really write papers? Do you really write papers? Do you really sit down and you're working on your paper and you're really putting thought into it? Or are you BSing to the word count? Let's be honest. I could say that with one sentence or I could say that with four. I'll say that with four. Right? Comma, 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 comma. Just trying to get to the word cow. You know it's the truth. Now, I see this in myself. Amanda and I have this deal where I do the dishes every night after dinner. Okay, I do the dishes, but she cleans the counters. Okay, so I do the dishes, but if there's a dish on the counter, I am not responsible for that dish because that dish is now on the counter. This is the doctrine of half-assery, all right? Now listen, you know it. We are wishy-washy people. Am I right? We are people who want to cut corners. We are people that even when we try to obey, it's partial obedience at best. What do you mean, babe? I did the dishes. I there's, you know, yeah, there's some stuff on the counters, but that's not me. That's you. Partial obedience at best. Am I right? Now we see that with Jacob. Now, 
I want to, I want to, let's just pull back here. I'm trying to try to be really practical today. How many of us in our minds that we believe, maybe we've heard the theology, maybe we've read a book that in our minds, we believe that God is out for our joy, that God does want us to be full of joy, right? And many of us even know that our joy does bring God's God glory. When we're happy in him, he is most glorified. Okay, you can sit out and watch the sunset and just go inside and be and not give God glory. But you can sit out there and go, my God created that. And immediately that normal situation is now bringing God glory. Okay, but listen, this is what happens. We know that up here. But then when he asks us to do something that we don't necessarily like or we don't understand, we, we think that he's trying to hurt us or he's trying to take away something from us that will bring us happiness. And then we flip it on him and we treat him like he's a tyrant. Why won't you let me do this? You must not be, you must not want my joy. Why, why are you taking this away from me? You must not want my good. See, this problem goes all the way back to the garden of Eden. When God gave Adam and Eve every tree of the garden to eat from, save one. He said, let's walk and talk together every single day. You can roam the garden, you make babies, build cities, make culture, just do whatever you want, have a blast, and be happy. Just don't touch this one tree. And of course, Adam and Eve, under the influence of Satan, they think to themselves, God is holding out on us. I bet that one tree, that tree of knowledge and good and evil, I bet, it, I bet it's really the tree of happiness. I bet it's really the tree of joy. He's just wanting to want it all for himself. See, we, we believe this lie turns God into a tyrant. They believe it must be the best tree of the garden. That's why God doesn't want us to eat from it. See, God was out for their joy. He is their joy, but they foolishly believe that they could find joy in disobeying God And out of that one decision, the whole earth and the whole human race has been cursed by God. And because all of us are part of Adam's race, we too are infected by this sin that causes us to doubt God's goodness and go to other places to find our joy. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. Say two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you see that? Listen, this is what we do. This is our temptation. This is what we do right here. We turn away from the solid joys in God, the eternal waters that God offers us, we turn away from those and we turn to our own leaky pots. He says, you've left the fountain of living water and you've hewed out cisterns for yourself that have holes in them. Leaky cisterns. This is what we do. We neglect the joy that's found in God and we go chase the joy that's found somewhere else. And this stuff is fleeting. This stuff is a leaky pot. We see that in Jacob. Jacob was a leaky pot, man. Jacob had a leaky soul. I want you to think about this. Over here, this is God. You've got a solid pot filled with water. And over here, you've got a pot with a hole in it. And it doesn't matter how much you put into that pot, it's still draining out the bottom. This one is living and always satisfies. I want you to... Now listen, don't make fun of this, all right? I'm not an artist. 
but I do my best. Put the slide up here that I made. This is what I call the battle of faith. It's the battle of faith. It's the battle for our joy. This is how we fight sin. Okay? Over here, we have broken cisterns. We have things that we think... Now listen, I put sin up here, but you might think this is just bad things. This is going to anything to find our joy. This is anything that we think will find our joy outside of God. Okay? This is leaky pots. This is broken cisterns. This is my own self-will. Here we see Jacob saying, you know what? This is a touchy situation. This is difficult to deal with. I'm just going to choose my own way. And I'm going to give you a heads up on what's going to happen here. Jacob chooses to disobey God, and he goes to Shechem instead of Bethel. And this leads to the rape of his daughter. Next week we're going to read it. His daughter gets raped in Shechem. Horrible. Horrible story. And all it was was this guy trying to find joy in something other than God. All right, you know what? This is a difficult situation. I'm not just going to speak the truth to my brother and say, Brother, I can't go where you're headed. I have to go where God's calling me to go. And I'm going to Bethel. I'm going to choose my own self-will. I'm going to choose my own way to figure out of this situation. And it's going to wind up. It's going to end up. And the rape of his daughter. Horrible circumstance. But it's because he's seeking his own self-will and not being led by the Spirit. Not obeying God. Not going to God for the source of his joy. See, in the book of Acts, we see the apostles being refilled with the Holy Spirit kind of over and over. They recognized that, that they had a leaky soul. Listen, we all have a leaky soul. We are a pot... That we've hewed out a cistern that that pot is leaking all the time. And we constantly need joy poured into that that pot. But where do you go to get it? Are you going to go to to the false joys? Are you going to go to the things of the world? Are you going to go to money and sex and power and relationships? Or are you going to go to the source of the true joy, the living water, God? See, God's supply is inexhaustible. But sin, sin is a resource that gets depleted over time. Sin is, it's not, it's not, it's exhaustible. It's an exhaustible resource. And let me, let me show you what I mean by that. See, in our own sin, when we look to something other than God to fill us, to give us joy, what we do, we get caught up in the law of diminishing returns. Have you ever heard of this? The law of diminishing returns. See, I need more and more of that thing to make me happy. But at the same time, my resources are getting depleted at the same time. So let me just use drugs as a, as a very easy, this could be anything, but let me use drugs as an example. I'm trying to find my joy in drugs, in whatever that gives me, the high or the, the, the escape or the, the, the freedom from fear. Whatever it is, I'm using it. I'm using drugs to find my freedom, to find my joy. But here's the problem with sin. What happens? One hit today, to get the same hit tomorrow, i got to have two, right? So a year from now, i got to have three, four, five. So you need more and more and more. But guess what? This is a, there's a hole in this bucket. So it's leaking constantly. So guess what? While you're having to take more and more and more drugs, you have to buy more and more drugs. So as your need goes up, your resources go down. And eventually, almost every drug addict eventually hits the point where they can't supply their own habit. 
They steal, they, they do whatever they have to do to supply their own habit. It's the law of diminishing returns. The more you put into it, the more it takes from you. Not so with God. See, this is why sin is suicidal to our own joy. Like a drug addict is killing his own joy. Because as he takes the drug to get joy, he needs more of the drug to get it. And eventually he's not going to be able to pay for the drug. He's killing his own sense of joy. See, I need more and more of it constantly. But in the end, all of my joy is, is going to be lost. It ends in a drug overdose. It ends in rehab where I can't get the joy anymore. Eventually, all of my joy is lost. Now listen. Some of us might struggle with drugs in here today. I think probably more, many of us, more of us would struggle with success. Men, women. You tend to work longer and longer hours for more and more pay. But many times they end up neglecting their families. They end up neglecting their spiritual life, their churches, their missional communities, their fight clubs. They end up neglecting these things. Many times, men, you, you throw yourself into the office and you work and work and work and work. And before long, you come home and the wife's gone and she's moved out or she's changed the locks. Right? You've poured all this time into a false, broken cistern of your work and your own success. And then she leaves you. And this is the funny, not funny, the sad thing. She takes half your stuff with her. She takes half of your retirement with her. She takes half of the, the thing that you've been working on, the money, the success. She takes half of it with her. Everything that you thought would bring your joy, half of it's gone in a moment. Moms uh, oftentimes put all of their joy in their kids. See, these are good. Listen, guys, this is good things, and I'm putting them over here. This is good things. This isn't just like drugs, right? This, the good things, when we try to find our ultimate joy in them, good things become God things, and that makes them bad things. Success isn't a bad thing in itself. But to the neglect of your family, to the neglect of your church, it becomes sin. So the mom who puts all of her joy in her kids, she spends all of her money and all of her prayers and all of her thoughts and every waking moment with the children at the neglect of the relationship with their spouse. Listen, moms, this is what happens. You're not thinking clearly here because eventually those kids grow up and they move out. And mom, guess what? Your joy goes with them. If all of your joy is placed in your children, as your children leave, your joy goes with them. You've lost it all. You've poured all your joy, 18 years or maybe now 35 years of your life, and the son finally moves out of the house, and your joy goes with them. See, I want you to see, this is where the fight of faith rests. This is what we must fight for. We must fight every day of our lives to be happy in God, to find our true joy in God. We must fight for our ultimate joy, which is only found in him. See, Jesus, it says, the scriptures say, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. Now listen, listen, listen. Not the joy that was set behind him. Jesus came from the Trinity. 
He came from eternal happiness. It wasn't gratitude of everything that God had done that motivated, him, motivated God, Jesus, forward into crucifixion and death. It wasn't just thinking about, oh, I used to be a member of the Trinity and we used to, everything used to be great. And now I'm in this difficult time. Just remember back to that old past thing. No, 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 no. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus knew that he was going to go through this difficulty and then more joy was waiting for him. Joy in God. Many of us, all of, when we try to fight through a temptation, all we think about is the joy back here when God saved us. Well, I remember who I used to be. I remember what God brought me from. That joy is not strong enough to motivate us through difficult circumstances. We must be captured by a future joy. We must be captured by a joy on the other side of suffering. Maybe maybe we're talking about the end of time joy. Maybe we're talking about just more of God joy. We got to be captured by future joy. That's where we place our faith. See, Jesus couldn't go to the cross and obey God in such intense suffering with anything else than faith in his ultimate joy, which is found in the triune God. It's the same for us. Gratitude over God's past work in your life is not enough to empower you to obey him in tough times. Knowing the rules and what God expects of you is not enough either. Only your own joy, your own future joy that's found in God can empower you to rightly obey God for his own glory. That is to say that the fight of faith is won by the, listen to this, The fight of faith is won by the object of your faith. Everybody lives by faith. Either you're going to have faith in you, in your own self-will, or you're going to have faith in God as the ultimate and true source of our joy. Do you see this? This is the battle of faith. People like to say, oh, Christians, it's all about faith. Hey, it's all about faith for everybody. You either have faith in yourself, in your own intellect, your own emotions, your own wisdom, your own education, your own life experience, or you have faith in God. It takes as much faith to be an atheist as it does to be a Christian. Just where are you placing your faith? Is it in yourself or is it in God? Is it in the culture your culture's expectations for you? See, this is, guys, right here. This is the battle of faith. What will you believe? Where will you place your faith? Will you place your faith in your own desires and what you think will bring your joy? Or will you place it in God, who is the source of true joy? See, this is one reason. This is one reason why Christians read their Bible. It's not because they're supposed to. It's not because they need to learn all the rules. Christians read their Bible. Listen, if you understand correctly the doctrine of half-assery, right? That I know I'm tempted to believe other things other than God are the source of my joy. I'm tempted to sit at home and go, you know what? The reason I'm not happy right now is because I don't have a cigar. If I had a cigar, I would be happy. Okay? A cigar does bring me joy, but only when I do it to the glory of God. Thank God I can do that. Right? But my ultimate joy is only found in God. And if I see anything else as the source of my joy, it could be my wife. If I think my wife is the source of my joy, then my wife is going to be enslaved to me. She'll never meet my needs. She can never make me happy. Only 
God can meet that need. But see, when I read the Bible, this is what's so good about it. When I read the Bible, the Bible recalibrates my soul. It corrects my vision. It reminds me every day that my joy isn't found out here in life or for the spiritual people in here. It's not found in here either. I don't, I can't go inside myself and go inside my mind and just stir up my own joy and rub my ears and say, Woosa. I can't do that. Joy is not found out there. Joy is not found in here. Joy is found in the creator of all living things. And more specifically, joy is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Justin, what does this look like in real life? This is what it looks like. I'm not going to, it's just on it. You set aside time. You set aside time every single day, or you try to make it every day, to read your Bible. You say, but that's hard, and I don't get anything out of it. I read down, and it it looks like they haven't translated my Bible, and it's still in Greek. I don't know how to read my Bible. I don't have time. You do have time. You just got to wake up 15, 20, 30 hour earlier. Right? You have... And just, are you doing it because you need to learn the rules and learn how to be a good Christian? No, you're doing it because you want to find and be reminded that God is your source of joy. You want to read the scriptures and have something on the inside of you go, yes, he's the source of my joy. And I know, even though my life, I'm going through a difficult circumstance right now and I feel like God is against me and I feel like all hell is coming against me. I can look at the scripture. I can be reminded God is for me. God wants my joy, but it's only found in him. And all this pain I'm feeling is him chiseling away the things of the world off of me. So good. That's why I go to scripture. I don't get anything out of it. Now listen, this last Wednesday, man and I are trying out a different rhythm. And because Wednesdays I go late at Mission Community, so I'm tr- I take a couple hours on Wednesday morning and I, I was doing Javin's homeschool with him. He's six. Um, I love it. It's re- I love it. It's actually a lot of fun, but he's, he's in the process right now of learning how to read. And this is a crazy process if you ever think about it. So many of us just think like, I was born reading. It's just like natural. No, it's, there's little hieroglyphics on the page that our brain, we don't even read anymore. We just look at it and know it. But my son who's six, he's learning this process of how to read and he's doing, he's doing great at it, but he doesn't get how awesome it's going to be. Right, right now I'm kind of motivating. Hey, you'll be able to read the words in your video game. Right? I'm trying to motivate him with that. Right, He doesn't get that one day I'm going to hand him the Chronicles of Narnia or we're going to sit down and read it together. I'm going to hand him the Lord of the Rings and his mind is going to be blown. <laughs> he doesn't know that's going to happen. He doesn't know that he's going to eventually shut the TV off and go, no, I'll, I want to read because reading is awesome. He doesn't get that that joy is waiting for him. All he's doing right now is trying to learn, you know, long and short vowels and trying to understand what this punctuation means. See, he's doing it mostly because I'm making him. (laughs) He doesn't know the joy that is waiting for him on the other side of his studies. Now, C.S. Lewis was commenting about this, about people who are learning Greek and people are learning hard things. And this is what he says. Listen, the student, he gets it gradually. Enjoyment creeps in upon the mere drudgery But nobody could point to a day or an hour when one ceased and the other began. The Christian in relation to heaven is as much in the same position as the schoolboy. Poetry 
replaces grammar. Gospel replaces duty. Longing transforms obedience as gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. The cross comes before the crown. And tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft is open in the pitiless walls of the world. And we are invited to follow our great captain inside. He's saying, Christianity is the same way. You, you do, there's some dutiful things. There's making it hard and, and, and spending a half hour reading and studying your Bible, even though you don't think you're getting anything out of it. You're learning this new language almost. It's hard, but eventually it turns to poetry. Eventually your joy. Listen, if you're a musician, you should understand this. If you can throw a 90 mile an hour fastball, you should understand this. Nobody walks to the plate and boom, and just does it automatically or throwing a curveball automatically. It takes practice. Musicians, if you ever had a musician in your house, parents, you understand the painful toil it is to listen to them and just pluck away. What are they doing? They're learning their scales. They're sounding terrible. They're trying to memorize these, all these things that they have to do. And then after years of discipline... They can now sit down and totally express themselves in their music. The band gets up here. None of these guys started last week. Right? They've learned the scales. They've done the hard work that many of us in this room quit. What is this? What are those notes? I just want to rock out to ACDC. Right? Like, can I just start there? No? Okay, then I don't want to do the guitar. Right? It takes the hard work to do that. The joy has followed a lot of disciplined obedience. That's how it is with the Bible. You've got to sit down with it every day and read it. You've got to set aside special time in your week to study it. You've got to read books about it and buy commentaries on it. And then listen, this is, the, this is what's so brilliant. You don't even know when it happens. It's not a moment. It's not an instance. You don't even know when it happens. But all of a sudden, your joy will start to bubble to the surface. And you're going to find yourself enjoying it. And you're going to find yourself enjoying the God that you discover while doing it. It's not a moment. All of a sudden, I love my Bible. It's hard work. It's planting and pulling weeds and laboring and watering. And then all of a sudden, you look out your window and the... Right? The hostas are blown up. When did that happen? You don't even remember. You don't even know. Guys, listen. Why do I want you, every single person in this room, to devour their word of God, to bleed their Bible, to eat it up on a daily basis? Why? Because every single day of our life, if you watch TV, if you live in the world, you're bombarded with the lies that say your joy is found right here. Your joy is found on the other side of a degree. Your joy is going to be found in a new wife or a new husband or a fling at work or more money or more sex or whatever it is. Your joy is going to be found here. And only Scripture... Only God reminds us where our true joy is found. Reminds us that we can, that our souls, as Augustine said, our souls are restless until they rest in him. And that's not a one and done thing. Jacob shows us that today. Powerful encounter with God, falling on his face the next day. The doctrine of half-assery. But I thank God that Jesus Christ was not half-assed. 
Jesus Christ obeyed God to the fullest. Never once neglecting the source of true joy. What was the temptation in the, de- in the desert from Satan? It was the temptation to believe you could find joy in something other than obedience to the Father. He passed every one of them. Where we fail, Jesus passed. And that perfect righteousness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and through the faith in that work, that perfect righteousness can be counted as yours, can be counted as mine. So I come before God. He hears my prayers. He loves me. He, do, he's, he dotes on me like a loving father. Psalmist says that he, he saved me because he delights in me. Why? Because of the work of Christ counted on my behalf. And that's what we get to do this morning when we come to the table. So we're celebrating a perfect spotless righteousness in the righteousness of Christ. It has been applied to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ for us. Amazing. Amazing. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for your spirit that's here this morning. I thank you for pointing us to the everlasting fountain of true joy that you are for us. I pray that as we glorify you and as we study your word and as we sing your word and as we memorize your word and as we meditate on your word, you would fill us with your joy. Let us find our satisfaction in you. Help us fight this fight of faith as we turn from all of the false joys that we try to find and fill ourselves with, with and we turn to the source of true joy. Give us, give us the faith that we need. Fill us with yourself as we partake of the supper today. The body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.